please make your way in and find a seat. We're going to begin our equipping hour. I am not uh, Omri, in case you were wondering, despite our, our similar appearance. I'm not Omri. We're taking a, a break for one week from Omri's series, and we're going to look at Colossians 3. We're going to look at psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the church's call to sing. We're going to look a little bit more in depth at that this morning. Singing within the church has unfortunately been one of the most divisive topics over the last several decades. It's also one of the most misunderstood subjects for the church, and sadly, what should be a staple expression of Christian unity has become, and oftentimes is, a hotbed for controversy and strife within the local church. And one of the biggest lies that hinders what God intends for corporate singing together is the emphasis and cultivation of a view that sees the members of the congregation as primarily recipients as opposed to participants, as getters rather than givers. Now, I've led music at Grace Bible Church for, I tried to figure it out. I couldn't remember if it was 17 or 18 years. Um, and I love how this church sings. One of the highlights every week for me is getting led in corporate singing by all of you from up here as I hear you singing to the Lord joyfully and singing to me these wonderful truths that we get to enjoy and rejoice in together. So this morning, I don't anticipate this time coming as a rebuke, but hopefully just a, a fortification of what you love and experience and participate in so well each week. This morning, we're going to take a closer look at Colossians 3 and the church's call to sing. Yet before we dive into our passage, I'd like to set the stage for us a little bit this morning in just putting some definitions of a couple terms that are used frequently within the church. It's crucial that we understand what we mean by these terms. So first, when we think of worship, oftentimes that's used in conjunction with the corporate singing part of the church service. Oh, I just worship was so great this morning. I really enjoyed worship. Every week I look forward to worship, and oftentimes what people have in mind is the corporate singing. So what is worship? Well, it's to ascribe worth. It is to bow down, to serve, to minister. It was often used to refer to duties in the sanctuary in the Old Testament, and genuine worship takes the form of spiritual service and religious practice. Worship should flow as a response to the revelation of a holy God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah's response to the presence of Yahweh is fear and adoration and confession and expression of commitment and availability for service to him. And all of these things are oftentimes followed by ritual acts and religious observance. And yet what we see from Scripture is that the worshiper is never to be a passive observer of the words and the rituals of worship. And likewise, worship is not to be a dry routine or a formless outlet for emotion and experience. That will, that's what we see oftentimes in our day within the church where corporate singing and worship is meant to drive the emotions and the experience, and yet there's not very much content or depth or consistency of life with the things that are creating such an emotional high on Sunday. 
Worship is designed for the commitment of all of our faculties to God, to draw near to God, to fix our minds on the truth of God, and this should inspire commitment to serve God. Worship is a proper disposition of the heart that leads to an appropriate outward expression within one's life. It is where God has captured our attention and then is the recipient of our humbled attention. Genuine worship is the natural and proper response to the revelation of the holy God of glory. It will bring about reverential fear and confession, personal sacrifice for the service of our Lord and praise and commitment to him. You see, worship may include singing, but singing is not the entirety of worship. A little bit about singing. So as we consider worship, let's talk a little bit about singing. The first mention of music is in Genesis 4. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. Genesis 4, verses 20 and 21 says, Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Jubal, it seems, invented the wind and stringed instruments. And it's from Jubal that we get the word Jubilee. Music and instruments are preserved in the flood, and we see them first mentioned after the flood in the narrative in Genesis, where Laban inquires of Jacob in Genesis 31, 27. And he says, why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre? And this demonstrates that music played an important part in the happenings of the home. And these instruments in the hand of Laban show that the musical instruments had found their way into the upland country of Syria. And in Exodus, after the people of Israel had escaped from Egypt to the opposite shores of the Red Sea, Moses and the people sang a victory song. You remember this from Exodus 15. Verse 1, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider has hurled into the sea. And the song goes on through verse 21. The voices of thousands and thousands. In fact, over a million singing this song of praise, glorifying Yahweh. Just imagine such a scene. How truly astonishing that would have been. The thunderous roar of God's people singing and proclaiming what he had done. We see in the history of singing that it has always been a part of the people of God's expression of worship. And it's also been a means of remembering and drawing to mind the faithfulness of God over and over again. In Israel's history, expressions of emotion and gratefulness and worship of God. And how he brought them out of the land of Egypt and delivered them and his faithfulness and so on are expressed. The Psalms are constantly expressing things about God, ideals about our response to God, and a transparent, honest expression where emotions intersect with truth and are even at times reined in by truth. We all need that at times. And now for us today, singing is not a new concept for the church. The church is called to sing. It's a command. And while corporate worship is not exclusively corporate singing, corporate worship includes it. To sing together, to lift our voices up to God, and to proclaim glorious truths to one another is not an optional practice for the people of God. 
No one gets off the hook because of preference or talents. We are called to sing. You can't show up late and get out of it perpetually. In fact, we've interspersed singing in our service so that you can't do that. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend some time taking a closer look at Colossians 3.16. You can turn there, and the church is called to sing. This last summer and into the fall a little bit, we went through the book of Colossians together. And what we saw in the book of Colossians is that an unwavering conviction regarding the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ fortifies faith and enables faithfulness in the believer. And just by way of review, as we went through chapter 1, we saw the greatness of Christ put on display above all, over all. We see his great work rescuing us from the domain of darkness that God has accomplished, transferring us to the kingdom of Christ. And we see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is above all things. He holds all things together by his power. And not only is he above all of creation, but he is also the the central point, the primary focus, the originator of our salvation. It all flows from him and for him and to him. He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And as Paul makes his way through chapter 1, it kind of climaxes in his desire in 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 response to these things about Christ, that he wants to see every believer made complete in Christ. And that's why he labors and strains for the truth of the gospel to see God's people built up. In chapter 2, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are at Laodicea and for all of those who have not personally seen my face, he is laboring for them. He is struggling for them. He wants to see them matured in Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how all wisdom is found in Christ. He doesn't want them to be deluded by persuasive arguments. He doesn't want them to turn to other things from then Christ. Don't turn away from Christ to other things. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception and truths after truths about God and the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel. And then we get to chapter 3. Paul's given propositional truth after truth of what the gospel is, of who Jesus is, of what God has done. And yet he does not only speak of those things, he sets forth the implication of those truths for believers. He speaks these propositional, propositional truths But that's not all that he speaks of. The Christian's life is to reflect the reality of these truths. And that's what he really dives into at the first part of chapter 3 and on. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. And we're going to see this wonderful theology about the sufficiency of Christ and all that he's done intersect with the practical outworking in the Christian life of how one under that grace who has been transferred to that kingdom, is to live. Paul moves into instruction for the new man regarding his new life. He's going to talk about what to put off and then what to put on. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And he goes on and lists a number of sins and actions that characteristic of the old man in fact in verse 6 he says it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience and in them you also once walked and then jump down to verse 12 
He transitions from what the believer is to put off and how they are to no longer live and, and reflecting upon the unity that comes from Christ. In verse 12 now, he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, and he lists the virtues that Christians are to embrace in light of Christ's work in their life. And just read starting in verse 12. We'll read through verse 17, and then we're going to just kind of land on verse 16 for a bit. So chapter 3, Colossians, starting in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." There's a theme of unity and oneness among the people of God. This new life that we have in Christ is one where we are connected with one another. We are concerned with one another. We are seeking to encourage and strengthen one another. And I want you to notice in verse 15 and 16, there are parallel instructions. Look, at, look again at verse 15. He says, let the peace. And then in verse 16, let the word. Verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ, or the peace that Christ gives, the peace which comes from Christ, is to rule in your hearts. We each have an obligation for the peace that Christ gives to reign within us, and the sphere, an element in which that peace is to be expressed and lived is within the body, where there is a oneness and unity experienced among us. And then the call to thankfulness. And we see that thankfulness to God enables and enhances peace with others. When we think rightly about ourselves and who we are, and we think rightly about what Christ has done and what we've been given in him, it has a significant impact on how we interact interrelationally with one another. The gospel extinguishes entitlement. It extinguishes self-seeking motives. And it drives us to want to imitate our Savior who gave of his very life for our benefit. And we are called to emulate that, to do that as well. And then in verse 16, we see the parallel command. These instructions are undoubtedly related. They aid each other. In fact, this instruction seems to aid and enable obedience to letting Christ's peace rule in your heart and being thankful there. When Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Look again at verse 16, Then we'll spend some time here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the peace rule in your hearts. You were called to one body. There's to be peace among us. Our testimony to the world of our belonging to Christ is our love for one another. And on the heels of this command is to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts is the command to let God's word richly dwell among us. 
The thrust of the passage, uh, the thrust of that verse of this instruction is in the command to let the word of Christ dwell. And this is crucial. This really sets the stage for how we think about the church's call to sing. That it follows this command. It is under this command that the word of Christ is to dwell. You see, prior to salvation, you experienced no peace from God. You were under condemnation. We all were. Prior to salvation, we actually only desired to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. But now for the believer, Christ's word has a new priority in our life. Where we were consumed at one point in time with suppressing truth about God, now the truth is actually to take up residence within you. The word of Christ is the message Christ gave, which expounds and explains who he is. This word has Christ at the center, the gospel message expounded from Scripture. This truth from Scripture is to dwell richly within us, that it is to be the repeated habit of life. That Christ's word is continually and habitually dwelling personally and powerfully within us. And thus the word of Christ does not exclude the Old Testament, as we'll see in a moment. Psalms are part of this, but it includes the revelation brought into the world by Christ. This is both the Old and the New Testament. The word of Christ is not some abstract impression or personal life story. It's not some mystical feeling that we have of hearing from the Lord. But what we have in Scripture is the word of Christ, and it is to dwell within us richly. Each one of us has this obligation before the Lord for his word to be dwelling in us. John Kitchen says it this way, personal opinion must bow to Christ's word. Personal feelings must yield to what Christ says. Individual ideals must bow to Christ's determinations through his word. When this happens, then peace will rule in our relationships. That's well said. What we find as we look at this, we see God's intention for his people is that his spirit in conjunction with his word would enable God's people to live in accordance with what he has done for them in his son. The spirit of God in conjunction with the word of God enables the people of God to live in accordance to what they have been given from God. The spirit of God does this for us as we experience and know his truth from his word and live it out faithfully in humble obedience, humble obedience to him. The truth found in scripture should saturate and influence every aspect of the believer's life. It must govern our thinking, it must govern our speaking, it must govern our actions, and as the word of God dwells within you richly, it must fill every nook and cranny of our being with its supernatural spiritual wisdom. As God's word dwells in us richly, it must do so with all wisdom. Do you see that in verse 16 as well? The word of Christ must dwell in us with all wisdom. That means we must not only have mental knowledge, but possess the ability to use the knowledge in the right God-honoring way. This only comes from the Lord. As we expose our hearts faithfully to the truth in his word with a yielding disposition of faith. And then Paul follows up this command regarding the word of Christ with two participles describing the means by which we are to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly. 
the means by which we are to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly, and that is teaching and admonishing one another. Well, in order to do this well, to serve each other this way, there has to be personal devotion to God's word. Yet there is an obligation for the believer in their Christian life to be connected with other believers in a manner that they can teach and admonish one another. And so what we find is that what you do individually with your heart and its proximity to God's word undoubtedly impacts the church. This impacts the church on Sundays in our corporate gatherings, and it impacts the church in our small groups, midweek, and coffee meetings with one another, and fellowship in each other's homes, and all the other ways that we interact and care with one another. God's word must be the primary focus. It must be dwelling within us richly as we interact with one another. And yet Paul has something specific in mind that he's speaking to here. While that truth is a reality that should be present for us at all times, Paul has something in mind that he's really touching on specifically in regards to the corporate interaction that we have with one another. The word of Christ is to dwell within us here as we teach and admonish one another. To to teach here is the same word Paul uses to speak of official teaching of doctrines within the church. But here it's clear it's an obligation that includes all members of the body of Christ. This is not only an instruction for elders and deacons, but this is for us with one another. We are to teach one another. To instruct one another. And then to admonish each other. Uh, To admonish at its most basic meaning is to put in mind... Thus you are are warning or instructing or reminding or giving instruction regarding one's belief and conduct. That is, putting into their mind the truths about God or his expectations for you and how you must respond in humble submission to him. We're commanded to do this. And the vehicle we are finally getting to here is singing. Singing is the vehicle Paul has in mind here. It is to be done through songs. And what kind of songs? Paul describes it. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So everybody is called to care for one another as God's word is richly dwelling within us through teaching and admonishing one another through songs. What kind of songs? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This isn't intended to be the exclusive means by which this takes place, but it is to be a regular means of it. We teach and we admonish through songs. Not songs only, but songs consistently. We teach and admonish, and what kind of songs? We'll touch on these here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I want you to notice for a moment, what is the main instruction again? Let the word dwell within you richly, the word of Christ. We just need to keep that in mind as we're pondering these various vehicles in which that happens. What's really sweet for the Christian, there's a motive response. There's an emotive response to the reality of God's word that leads the body of Christ in teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's a gift from the Lord to have this kind of outlet to instruct and admonish one another and encourage one another in and also to lift up our hearts before the Lord with. 
When we sing together in worship and praise of God, all of us sing together. We sing as one body and we're teaching and admonishing one another. And this is a gift from God. Think of how rich the truths are that we get to proclaim with each other. These songs teach us, they instruct us, they even correct us in our thinking and our actions in a form that is emotive and, and it's easily memorized and retained, right? How often have you come to church on a Sunday and we sing a song and on Tuesday you're singing that same song? So it's resonating in your heart and your mind. It's a bunch of blank stares. Maybe, maybe that's, okay, we'll work to grow in that, okay? Katie is like, I sing them all week! <laughs> It's a gift from the Lord that we get to express these things this way. And there's both a vertical and a horizontal nature of our singing that Paul is instructing us to do here. We sing with one body, lifting up our voices to God with thankfulness in our hearts, but we're also singing to one another, and these things coexist beautifully so. When we join together as the body of Christ, we are worshiping God in song, proclaiming and declaring truths to him, but we're also singing to one another and reminding one another of the greatness of Christ and who God is and what he's done. We're actually oftentimes declaring ideals of how we should be living and at times fall short of. We often take our thoughts by the reins of song and tell ourselves, tell ourselves and tell each other what to think and feel about God. We sing as realities that which we aspire to. Think for a moment of the song, The Glories of Calvary, right? My heart is filled with a thousand songs proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Have there ever been a time, has there ever been a time where you showed up on a Sunday and you sang that and you just paused and thought, I'm not, I'm not sure that was true. That's okay. Repent <laughs> and sing it, aspiring to align your heart with what God calls us to do, which is have that kind of worshipful, worshipful response. And in that moment, you're actually being admonished. And that's good. That's a blessing. Oh, my, my heart has been divided this week. Lord, help me. Help me to mean this as I sing this right now. Well, Paul draws attention here to three nouns. He says it comes out in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What exactly Paul intended with these three nouns has been debate, debated extensively over the years. It Seems highly likely Paul's intention when referencing psalms here is what is found in the Old Testament book of psalms. Uh, this would either be a specific psalm or something very similar to one of the psalms sung in worship of God for the edification of the body. Psalms also carries with it the accompaniment of instrumentation. Psalms were taken from the Old Testament Psalter to sing and worship in the early church, and we do that today. We do that in songs like Glorious and Mighty, which is taken from Psalm 96 or Psalm 62 or the song The Lord Is, which is taken from Psalm 23. Hymns describe songs composed and sung in praise of God with their content predominantly being specific to the Christian faith, drawing on Christocentric realities. It's not exclusively this way, but oftentimes that's characteristic of hymns and their expressions of praise to God. 
Tradition points to parts of the New Testament being put to song early in the church, and we sing many hymns that proclaim realities of who God is and what he has done, particularly in the gospel. And then songs is just the common Greek word for songs, yet Paul says spiritual songs, indicating these are songs offered in praise to God under the control of the Spirit. Spiritual songs seem to have emphasized personal testimony. The song, All I Have is Christ, might fall into this category, right? I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, and so on. There's a a personal account of the life before Christ, and then the transformation of life, and now what we declare, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. And if you're wondering why the nuanced difference, you're not alone. This has been debated debated extensively over the years, yet what is clear is Paul was not prescribing three classifications of musical singing together in the body that must be done in a precise formed way each time we get together. Rather, he seems to be piling up nouns that possess nuanced expressions to make his point of the diverse expressions of truth about God on which instruction and admonishment come from and to one another in the body of Christ. There's to be a variety of richness where the word of Christ has a central place among the people of God as we sing with one another. And again, all of this is to be fixed upon the richness of the word of Christ. And regardless of your thoughts on psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, it's clear that our singing together is to be an expression of Christ's word ruling in our hearts. Forms may be diverse regarding song structure, style, and so on. Yet any song that is distant from the realities of Scripture simply is counterproductive to what we are commanded to sing and do together. And so just think about the implications of this for a moment. When we're thinking through corporate worship and song, what should be on our radar? What should we have our senses tuned into? No pun intended. Tuned in. (laughs) Man, I'm clever and I don't even realize it. First and foremost, can I conclude that the word of Christ is dwelling within his people here? More than style? More than instrumentation? Is the content reflective of the word of Christ dwelling within his people? Then, is the manner of their singing conducive to mutual teaching and admonishment? Is this a performance to spectate or something to engage in? We should aim for the latter. And listen, wonderful things happen to God's people when we do this. Turn to Philippians for a moment. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, starting in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement, and that if is, is assumed true for the sake of argument, he's, you, could, you could replace it with since. Therefore, since there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is fel- uh, consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, or if or since any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. So really, because of all these things being present in the people of God, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, just think about this for a moment. In corporate singing, 
where we join together and there's 400 plus of us in the same room singing the same truths with one voice. What a precious and unique opportunity for us to unite in mind and purpose. This is a gift from the Lord to us. And yet look at what Paul says right after that. Do not merely look out. Oh, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How much differently would conversations about music in the church have gone if people had simply just read that first? Our participation on Sunday mornings isn't for our exclusive benefit. And I've, I've heard over the years, well-wishing uh, individuals from churches who express their love for the corporate singing by statements like, oh, I love worship. I look forward to it every week. I close my eyes. Everything just drifts away, and it's just me and God. What a sweet, kind sentiment expressed at the Worst possible time. When we're together, that's not the time for everything to drift away and just be us and God. We're to have a mind and a heart for one another. That doesn't mean don't close your eyes. But sing loud. <laughs> Serve each other and how we sing and how we engage on Sunday mornings. Even your heart disposition as you walk into the door. Oh man, I, I really need this today. I, I, I hope it's good. I hope the music is good. I hope so-and-so is leading and I hope this instrument is here. And we need to put that kind of thinking aside. And step into the doors going, how can I serve? How can I engage with truth in a way that edifies Christ's body? How can I consider others' needs above my own? How can I actively participate in a way that helps us be unified in intent and spirit and mind for the purposes and things that are pleasing to the Lord? What a gift when we get to sing. What a gift when we get to hear from God's word, the preaching of God's word, that in that moment, at the same time during the week where we have scattered and been living our lives, intersecting in and out of contact with one another and in and out of contact with the world, and then we get to join together at the same time under God's word and be reminded and, and taught precious truths from God's word. Both of these are are just incredible times of strengthening for the people of God where his word is dwelling richly among us and within us. It benefits our soul. The impact of teaching and admonishing each other spiritual truths cannot be overstated for the Christian. One of the sweetest memories I think I will ever have was in October, the week, uh, the Sunday after Caleb had passed. If you're not aware, Julie and I, our five-year-old boy, um, passed away in October through a tragic accident. And we came to church the next Sunday, and you all mourned with us so well, cared for us so well. And we sang, and then after the service, we took time to sing more. Seven songs, I think it was, together. I, I could barely speak. <laughs> and you all proclaimed truths that I desperately needed to hear, was clinging to, and to hear you all thunderously rejoice and remind me 
of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, of the gospel, of his trustworthiness, that, that had a radical impact. Now, I, I felt it more that week because we needed it desperately. That doesn't mean it has no less effect on all of us each and every week when we join together. It is a precious gift from the Lord that we get to sing and rejoice and teach and admonish one another as we sing to one another and we give thanks to God. We felt that so intensely. And then lastly, we see the phrase, look at that in verse 16. You can go back there. Back to Colossians 3, verse 16. The final phrase in our verse, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There we actually first see this, the word singing. Okay, the instruction is let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And you're teaching and you're admonishing, but you're also singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. We're to sing with thankfulness in our hearts. And again, we see the importance of recognizing that we are under God's grace our singing is not only to be lip service, but heart-moved proclamation of truths with gratitude to God. And in order for corporate singing to be worship, it either needs to be a mat upon which the life of yieldedness that we have been living lands, or a springboard upon which our life of yieldedness launches, right? Not every week we come in just on cloud nine spiritually ready to do and be all that we are. And when we join together in song for it to be worship, it needs to be a recalibration for our souls to launch us into a life of worship, a life of submission, a life of yieldedness. And when we come in and we have been living faithfulness, our declarations of truth are a mat for which we land upon and we proclaim the things that we have been living faithfully. And that is how worship intersects with our corporate singing as we die to ourselves, we give of ourselves for one another, and we live a life of faith and submission to our great Savior that is consistent with the things that we're proclaiming, seeking his people's good and his glory. Now, I'd like to take a little bit of time to just talk about some ways to prepare for corporate singing. Then I'm going to share just a couple things that are available to you to aid you in that, that we do at Grace Bible Church. We might have a few minutes for questions, if you have any, and then I think it'd be really sweet to sing together a couple songs before uh, we close this time. So just a couple thoughts for consideration as we prepare to sing corporately. The heart of each individual is to be a heart to serve one another. That's, that's the disposition that we're to bring in on Sunday mornings. We're not preoccupi preoccupied excuse me, with our favorite styles or arrangements or leaders, musicians, favorite songs even. It's okay to be excited about your favorite songs. But if you come in and we're not singing it, don't get in a rut. <laughs> well, I'm just not singing today. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody doing that. Can you imagine? It's probably happened somewhere at some point in time. Also consider this. What you do with your heart during the week, it matters. If you think, well, why, why are you guys always talking about reading my, that's be, reading my Bible and devotions. It's, that's legalistic and that's, that's between me and the Lord. No, it's not. That's all of our business. And out of love, we're going to encourage you 
to bring your heart before the Lord humbly, faithfully, dependently. And then we all benefit from that when we come together. Can you sing with conviction? Can you sing with conviction truths you've been living? We should aspire to this. Are you singing? Okay? There's no judgment on intonation within the congregation. Okay? So if you're tone deaf, we want to hear you. Okay? There have been people who are tone deaf in our body, and I can hear them up here, and it leads me in worship. I love it. So don't, don't stop. What time do you arrive at church on Sundays? How do you think of through your Saturday nights, your Sunday mornings, what time you wake up? Dads, are you preparing your families to sing on Sunday? Some resources for you. If you're not aware, we send out an email. It's just a small devotion each week. Excuse me. Each week, small devotion with the songs that we'll be singing. That comes out usually sometime Tuesday to Thursday. Um, That's available. If you'd like to be on that email, you can email me, josh at gbcaz.org, and I would love to add you to that list. We also have a Spotify station. Spotify is an app that you can download for free. You can pay for a subscription or you can download it for free. And we have a playlist that we put together called GBC worship music that you can subscribe to that playlist and it has all of the professional recordings or versions of the songs that we do on Sunday. So you can listen to those. We understand a lot of the songs that we do are unfamiliar for many and that's not because we're just trying to, you know, keep you on your toes. Uh, we, We put a strong emphasis on the content of songs and a lot of modern Christian music is just not very clear not very deep or not very accurate. And so we search for songs that are rich with scriptural truths because that's the goal, that's the aim, that's where the thrust of our attention goes. Recognizing that when you first join Grace Bible Church, that might be a little bit of a hindrance to your immediate ability to join in and sing, but we think that's worth it for the sake of being able to proclaim to one another scriptural truths. And so with that, we've created this playlist where you can familiarize yourself with songs that might be less common that we do. Facebook, if you're part of uh, Facebook, we have a GBC Friends group. This is for members and regular attenders. And within this group, the body just shares resources, looks for suggestions, different things like that. But Rachel goes in uh, from the office each week and lists what songs we're singing there uh, once they come out so that people, if they're not receiving the email, can, can look at it there. Music at GBC, considerations, things we think through. We think through content, singability. Uh, Can we sing this corporately? There's wonderful devotional songs that would just be really hard to organize 400 of us all singing together. So we shy away from those, ones that have melodies and structures that are more um, inducive to to corporate singing. We, We try to lean towards those arrangements keys, all of those types of things are thought through with how can we uh, help the body sing together. Sometimes, depending on your skill, that's more difficult. My voice is higher, so for me to sing a song comfortably, it's higher than what's comfortable for uh, many of the, the men or women in the church, so I have to kind of find where it seems like I can sing the song that the whole body can engage with as well. 
We strive for excellence without distraction. We want to remove uh, inconsistencies in our instrumentation and singing that might draw away from our ability to focus on truth. And we don't want to be so good. You know, the huge temptation for me, be so, I'm joking. <laughs> that is not where I struggle. But we have phenomenal musicians up here and they intentionally think about their parts to not draw attention to themselves in their excellence. So we, we don't want to draw attention away from the words either by being really bad and sloppy or by being so interesting musically that you just, oh, I just had to stop singing because, man, that guitar lead part was so awesome. Although there's probably a way to do that worshipfully to the Lord as well. But you miss out on the singing to one another. Lighting, volume in the worship center. We want to be able to hear one another. We want to be able to see each other, those types of things. All right, we have a couple minutes for questions. Does anybody have a question, something that you've been dying to ask, you've been wanting to pull me aside in private and ask me about music at GBC, and now that we're all together in this room, it's the perfect opportunity to ask. It's okay, this is a safe zone. I was joking, you could ask. Of psalms. So psalm is... At its base form, a song with accompanied instruments. So in Colossians 3, uh, I think Paul's actually referring, he's thinking songs accompanied with instruments because that's what that word is. But I think he's thinking of Old Testament psalms are to be a part of corporate singing as well. So just the word psalms, songs accompanied with instruments. But as we know, the Old Testament book of psalms that were compiled songs that um, Israel would sing Synonym for psalms. Only if I use multiple words. Um, just uh, words accompanied by instruments, music. That's the. It, it doesn't have some sort of um, innate spiritual depth to it. It's just, um, oh, you're singing something and playing an instrument with it. That could be classified as a psalm. But it carried with it as for God's people as they put together the book of Psalms and it was referred to as Psalms, it, it carried with it a more specific notion of, of that compilation of books or um, songs. Yep, good question. Frank. Theologically shallow, not, not content that's rooted, expressing scriptural truth, but maybe just um, high view thoughts. If, if Christ's word is to dwell among us richly, I'd like there, I think we should aspire towards clarity and consistency with scriptural truths. And so for a song to, to not be very deep, um, might just, uh, what would be... An expression. If you're just saying, Lord, you're good. Lord, you do good things. We're thankful for you. That is not biblically inaccurate. Okay? But when we have an opportunity, it's 400 people to be together as the body of Christ, Scripture declares those things and describes why. And so, would it be wrong or sinful to sing a song that's not very deep? No. 
But if it's inaccurate, unclear, and not very deep, I'd rather go for clear, accurate, and, um, and deep, rich. Yes, Andy. Ooh, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the song Lead On, O King Eternal was one of my favorites. For a long time, it had the coolest guitar part. And, uh, and, and the truth was great until you got to the third verse where it says, uh, not with swords loud clashing, nor, nor well, for not with swords clashing, nor rolls of stirring drums, with deeds of life, love and kindness, your heavenly kingdom comes. And uh, realized that that, was, that song was written by someone who was influenced and held to a post-millennial post eschatology. And, and so after singing that for a few years, um, oops, okay, well, we could not sing that verse, or we could just, you know, not do the song anymore and, and go from there. Um, what's another song? There's other songs that we just beat into the ground, and so we, you know, let's, let's just retire it, um, different season, different time. Um, better, is, <laughs> better is one day, you know, is one of those very sweet songs that... You know, when I would sing it for 10 minutes each time we'd do it, it shortened the length of how long we decided to do it. Not, not because the song is inaccurate or wrong, but because there's like four bridges and it has a tendency to go on and on. Yeah. Yep, Ashley. Is this a test? <laughs> you, you mean which ones those are? Uh, there's one that we changed. Um, uh, oh, Holy Night is a great example. Yeah. Um, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Oh, good. That got me out of trouble from bringing up other songs. So. Uh, oh, and we changed it to uh, Till he appeared and the sun came to earth. Um, because Christ appearing, um, when we see Christ, we don't go, oh, Look at Christ came for me. <gasps> That's how valuable I am. No, scripture would conclude the opposite. Christ came when we were godless, helpless sinners. Our impression of Christ's coming shouldn't be, wow, look at how good I am and how valuable I am that, that God would do this for me. No, it's look at what an expression of humble, self-giving love that Christ would do this in spite of me. So, yeah, that's one we, we changed. We have a couple songs. There's one, I, I'm, have, I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, we don't sing a lot of songs that talk about specifically raising our hands or bowing down because I, I want the body to feel compelled to do or mean the things that we're singing. This is just a personal little quirk of mine. Um, so if we talk about we raise our hands, um, well... I don't know, not everybody's going to raise their hands and not everybody maybe should or has to raise their hands. And so I shy away from songs like that and um, not because it's morally wrong or uh, it, that's more just a, that's just, you're stuck with me and so you have to deal with some things like that. Any other questions, comments? Yes, Janet. Oh. Ever had hymnals? No, we haven't. We've always sung hymns. 
but we've never actually had books. I think a lot of that is because we were a mobile church, and so putting hymnals in chairs, and it just, we had the PowerPoint, we can put the words on the screen for people to see um, and sing along with, and, and so that's just not something that's been in our history. Yep. Yep. That's definitely, that's a definitely a, a benefit. But um, yeah, we, there were some logistical challenges and it's kind of set the tone of just how we've done things. And uh, I'd be willing to entertain considering that now that we do have a building, you know, what would it look like to have hymnals? What hymnal would we use? And um, think through the benefit of that. I haven't put much, too much thought into should we go get hymnals, um, but I don't feel compelled to just discard it. I'd, I'd want to consider that. Yes, Bree. So the question is, churches that don't think it's biblical to have instruments, where do they get that from? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Instruments all, are all over our Bible. Um, in fact, it's, you know, Psalm 50 talks, or 150. Um, you know, there's clashing of cymbals and things like that, which makes me feel totally justified with our drum set. <laughs> okay, Ashley said that there's some denominations that um, the New Testament doesn't specifically refer to instrumentation, and so they don't use it because they um, pride themselves on being a New Testament church. Okay, let's, um, let's sing one song together. Go ahead and stand, and we'll sing In Christ Alone. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving seems Comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in health, this babe, this gift of love and righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground body lay 
Light of the world by darkness slain Then bursting forth in glorious day Up from the grave he rose again And as he stands in victory Sin's curse has lost its grip on me For I am his is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ no guilt, no guilt in life no fear in death this is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny no power of Thank you so much for the work that you have done in your son, for the hope and the strength that comes from him. I pray that you would preserve us and that we would stand strong in his power for your glory by your grace. Thank you for this time, even this morning, to look at your word and explore even a little closer your intention for your church to sing, uh, but especially for Christ's word to dwell richly among us. I pray that that would be true of us, that would, that would be true among us as a people, and Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would do your work in us to conform us more into the image of your Son. We ask for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 